Eat Sleep Raise podcast, Brian ESR, Hugo ESR, and our special guest today, 24-year-old NASCAR driver Joe Graff Jr., based from New Jersey, right? Actually, grown, born and raised in Jersey, right? Born and raised in Jersey. I grew up right in Mawa, so super happy to be back in Jersey for this. That's what's up. Actually, I got to ask, are there any other NASCAR drivers in the history from Jersey? Yeah, so there is. So Martin Truex is from Jersey. Um, I think there's another one or two, but I'm I'm not uh I'm not 100 percent sure. But he's, not too he's many NASCAR drivers from the Northeast, huh? No, there's there's not a ton of them. I mean, a lot of them from North Carolina, a lot of them from California too, um, Southeast. But I think uh, I think there's only been a few from Jersey. So that actually uh, segues into our first question: Are you the first racer driver in your family? So I am not the first racer in my family. I'm the first NASCAR driver in my family, but my uh, my dad raced locally growing up, so I always grew up going to the racetrack, going to short tracks, Bethel Motor Speedway here in uh, New York. It's about an hour from where I lived in Mala, um, and then my uncle raced as well. What type of racing did you guys, uh, was your dad doing? So mostly short tracks, like Bethel Motor Speedway was a quarter mile, so he started in a street stock. I remember... Uh, him and my grandfather building the street stock at my garage growing up. Or, uh, so I'd, I'd always go out there as a kid and try to help him out. I'm sure I wasn't much of a help, but <laughs> it was, uh, it was fun. Like how many people are in a race? So in a NASCAR race, there's 38 in the Xfinity series and then 40 in the cup series. How about when you were starting out at Bethel? Ooh, so that depends on the week. It depends how many showed up. So I think the maximum they would start is 25, but I mean, there were some weeks where, when we were first getting started, um, there'd only be five or six of us. Down in North Carolina, I guess where most of these racers come from, that type of racing, are there way more racers down there for that type of racing? Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of racers down there. And a lot of the big races are in North Carolina. Like when I got a little bit older, um, like 12 to 15, I started traveling to North Carolina a lot to race with those guys down there. We'd, uh, we'd go out to Texas. We'd have a week in Florida where we'd race Bandoleros and Legend cars down there. So... Um, got to travel around a little bit doing that. And, um, suddenly all the family vacations were built around the racetrack. Now, when you guys race, um, I know there's a lot of different surfaces you guys race on, right? Like what was your favorite? I know there's like dirt, there's asphalt. So I grew up racing asphalt short tracks. Um, that's what, what I've, what I was accustomed to, um, grassroots racer. And then once I got into NASCAR, we have a couple dirt races a year. As you guys know, we have a lot of road courses now as well. So I wasn't really um, accustomed to doing either of them. My first, uh, my first dirt race was in the ARCA series uh, back in 2018. So that was, a, that was a learning experience for me for sure, but it was a lot of fun. It uh, led to a little bit of dirt modified racing as well. Um, got to run with Kenny Schrader down at Volusia. Um, ran with him at the coin as well. That was, that was a really fun time. And then road courses, my, uh, my first road course in anything except like go-karts at the mall <laughs> was actually Indianapolis in an Xfinity car in 2020. So you spoke about following or, you know, going with your dad to the track, then finally getting in the car yourself. How many years have you been racing, you know, in total? So I'm 24. I've been racing for about 14 or 15 years. I got into it when I was just turning 10. So, um, it's been a little while. I've been racing longer than, uh, I haven't been. So for you to come up the ranks from just, you know, grassroots racer all the way to, you know, now professional NASCAR driver, 
Was there any formal training? Did you go to school for this? Did your dad teach you? Like, how how did you raise the ranks? So growing up, it was really just a Saturday night hobby. I I, I always loved it. I was pretty good at it. We uh, we traveled the country, won a lot of races. Um, but I never really thought it could take us to this level. Um, I, uh, it wasn't until I was 17, I decided like, I really wanted to try to make a career out of this. I went to my parents and told them that, and, uh, they weren't entirely on board. They wanted me to go to college. They wanted me to kind of go that route and have racing be a Saturday night hobby. Um, and I can't say that I necessarily blame them. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that goes into this and, um, there's a lot of unknowns. So that's the, their option is definitely the safer bet, but, um, I ended up trying to prove to them that I could do both, go to college and race. I took uh, I took college classes at Harvard my senior year of high school just to show that like I could race and go to school as well and um, ended up doing well there. So they they let me do it, but it was, uh, it was a little bit of a sales pitch. Now, when, when uh, Brian was asking, you know, you, you did all these different types of racing. I know on drag racing side, you know, people have to like, uh, in order for you to run certain times, you have to get licensing. Is there any type of licensing that you need for like what you do? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So you need a NASCAR license. There's an approval process that you have to go through. They have to approve you for different tracks and things like that. Um, like I, uh, to get approved for Xfinity, I had to run ARCA in 2018 and 19. I went there, I, I raced at Daytona, raced Talladega. I raced a lot of the big tracks and that was uh, what actually approved me for making my first Xfinity starts. And uh now at this point, obviously I'm, I'm approved for everything, but there's definitely an approval process to be able to get a NASCAR license and really compete at this level. So that, so there was a reason why, like when you first started, like, I think when we first met you, you were in the ARCA series. Mm-hmm. So actually for those listening, unfamiliar with NASCAR, because this was me a couple years ago, cause I knew nothing about NASCAR. We linked up with Joe NASCAR. I thought was Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt, you know, that's, that was the NASCAR that I was aware of, but come to find out there's several levels, would you say, or series, different series, I think, right, right. Different series of NASCAR. And, you know, it starts, I guess your top tier is cup, Mm -hmm. second tier Xfinity, third tier truck and fourth tier Arca. Yes. And you got your start in Arca. Do you necessarily have to race, like, do you have to start at ARCA to get to Cup, or are there people who just jump to Cup? Like, how does that work? So there's a lot of different paths. It's uh, it's extraordinarily difficult just to jump to Cup. Everybody that I've seen go to Cup without doing that either came from, like, IndyCar or Formula One, things like that, other racing series of a similar level. Um, but... Um, somebody can't just go from like being a local short track racer to, Hey, I want to drive a cup car. That's, that's not how it Even works. Even if they had all the money in the world. Even if you had all the money in the really? world, you have to go through some of the other series to get approved, show that you can do it and show that you're not a danger on the racetrack as well. Mm. Cause, cause like you were saying, there's 38 people on a track. <clears throat> absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I don't, uh, we still have our fair share of wrecks and crashes in NASCAR. I, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be rubbing doors with people who don't know what they're doing. Right. Now, also, when, when it comes to the, the racing, I know back in the day, I used to, I used to love the trucks. It, are, is the truck still a thing right now? Yeah, or? so the, the truck series races 22 races a year. Um, 
series is doing great. They've got tremendous talent in there, and uh, it's uh, it's really thriving. And how many races is Xfinity? So Xfinity is 33 races a year, and then Cup is 36. So right now, um, in the series that you're racing in, how many races is there for, for the season? 36, right? No, so there's 33 Xfinity races. So I race 33 times a year if I don't race a truck or a Cup car, which... Sometimes you can be part time in the truck series or the cup series being full time in Xfinity as well. Wow. And, and, and even if you are racing a truck, that's in the same weekend. So a lot of times it is. So they have uh, like for Daytona to start the year, they'll have the truck race on Friday, the Xfinity race Saturday and the cup race Sunday for the Daytona 500. Um, but there's also some standalone Xfinity races, some okay. standalone truck races. Um, so they kind of split it up sometimes, but most of our races in Xfinity are companion races to the Cup Series. That's awesome. So you just went through a race weekend in general, like when all the races are together. So it would be Cup on Sunday, Xfinity Saturday, Truck also Saturday? Truck's usually Friday. So it's like a Friday night race, and then we have Xfinity Saturday, Cup Sunday is typically how a NASCAR weekend looks. ARCA Thursday? So ARCA... Um, ARCA is a little bit different. So sometimes ARCA is the same day as Xfinity. Sometimes they'll have it on Saturday. But ARCA has a lot more standalone races than trucks and Xfinity have. So I think ARCA only has, they race 20 races a year. I think they only have seven or eight where it's a companion race to the NASCAR the Cup Series. Race. Would you say ARCA would be like minor league, kind of like minor league baseball? Yeah, that's, that's probably a, a really good way of looking at okay. it. Yeah. And then your major league would be your cup. Yeah, Xfinity. yeah, yeah, Cup Xfinity, yeah. Got it. So you, you got your start in ARCA. How, and like, so what got you from, you know, local grassroots driver into ARCA? Like, what is that process? Like for somebody who's like, I want to race an NASCAR, like what, how does that happen? So it takes a lot of work. I mean, I was uh, I was driving all over the country. I was racing late models at the time, and I was racing modifieds at Stafford, different things like that. And I uh, <clears throat> I got an opportunity with Chad Bryant Racing to make six starts in 2018, um, and that was really my opportunity. I took a gap year between high school and college to try to make this racing thing work, and uh, I was able to get an opportunity there. And I actually broke my foot six days before my first ARCA start, which was at Nashville in 2018. Um, I, I opted to not get a cast put on it. We taped the bone in place, uh, a doctor taped the bone in place. Um, and we went and, uh, raced national. We ended up doing really well. We led laps. We, uh, ran really good all day. Um, unfortunately we had a transmission go bad towards the end of the race, but really kind of made some noise, put me on the map a little bit. But I think the race that really did it for me in the Arca series was Talladega in 2018. It was the first race that I wasn't supposed to run. Um, I only had six races. They ran 20 ARCA series races. Um, and the driver who was supposed to run it backed out on, uh, on Tuesday morning before the race. And I'm about to get on a plane to fly back up to Jersey to get a cast put on my foot. Um, and I get a call from the team owner, Chad. He's like, hey, we, uh, we actually have an opening for Talladega this week. Is it something you want to do? And I'm like, absolutely. Um, so at the time, the biggest racetrack I'd ever been on was a mile and Talladega is 2.6. So, um, I, I watched as much film as I could. I, I did some, some eye racing and stuff to try to get ready for it. Um, but I was pretty nervous going there. I'll be honest with you, but we went there, 
we ended up running second in a pretty wild race. It was the closest finish in ARCA history. Um, I'm pretty sure it still is to this day. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the closest in Talladega history too. I'll have to double check that, but I'm pretty certain. Um, and that was really like the big, uh, my big moment. I was, uh, on a race by race basis after that, um, the team kept me in the car. I ended up running, uh, all but one race that year. I didn't run the first race at Daytona, but went on to win at Berlin. Um, had a lot of really good runs that year. So when you say Chad Bryant racing asked you to race, does that mean were you getting paid at that point? So like, what does that mean? Driver salaries are interesting, right? So, um, just in NASCAR in general, right? So there isn't a, uh, like the NFL, the MLB, different things like that. They have a minimum salary, right? So if you get in, you're making X amount of money at, at a minimum. NASCAR really isn't that way. And most motorsports aren't, um, like you have some of the drivers in NASCAR who are obviously making millions and millions of dollars. And then there's, uh, some that really aren't making very much. Um, so like I've had, I've had some decent years in NASCAR and I've had some tough ones as well, as far as the, as far as the pay goes. So, um, I'm not going to say exactly what I was making at the time, but it wasn't very much. So for an aspiring driver out there, grassroots driver, it's like, uh, you just killed my dream right there. That means, so if I drive for a team, that means I can't get paid. Well, it doesn't mean you can't get paid. It, it, it all depends on the situation you're in and uh, the sponsorship you have and the type of team you're racing for. And there's a lot of uh, different ways that contracts are, are written with drivers and things. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. So that's not necessarily true, but there definitely are drivers out there that aren't racing for anything. And do you think like um, with the drivers that are making, do you th- like even for you, if someone offered you like a seat in a car for a whole season and said, hey, I don't have money to pay you, but you get to drive my car. Is that something that people consider? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was uh, this is my dream, right? This is what I love to do. I love going to the racetrack. So, I mean, there's been opportunities where I feel like we could run better and um, the money might not necessarily be there and you kind of have to make a stretch to make it happen. But like ultimately I'm, I'm a racer at heart. I want to run as good as I can. And, uh, that's what I do. So that's a good topic. You know, some racers don't get paid. Some racers actually lose money because they pay to be able to get a seat in a car from what I've learned. So that, that does happen as well. There's a, there's a lot of drivers who take a chance and either take out a loan or use family money to try to get an opportunity in the sport. And then they're actually spending money to be there. Um, it makes it, it makes it really interesting because like on one hand, there's drivers making millions of dollars a year. And then on another, there's some of them that are paying to be there. Cause ultimately if you have the dream to race, you know, Daytona or Talladega, that could technically, you could buy your way into that dream. You could fund it yourself essentially. So there are drivers who try to do that. Absolutely. And it works out for some, it doesn't for others. At the end of the day, it all kind of has to come together. The funding has to come together. The sponsorship has to come together. And then the driving ability and talent has to come together, right? I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of teams come in or drivers come in that just didn't really have it and it doesn't work out. Um, or you also at most of these places like Daytona, for instance, they send cars home who don't qualify. So there's 38 spots 
but at Daytona, sometimes 45 cars show up. So oh, wow. seven people will go to the race and not race. And not race, yeah. All right, let's give some keys to success here. If anyone's, you know, grassroots driver, you got the dream. You want to race at Daytona. You want to race at Talladega. First, you need some skill, right? Because you can technically buy a seat to race at one of those tracks during one of the big races because some teams do have extra cars that could potentially race as long as there's a sponsor, as long as there's money to put that car on track, right? But technically, that team won't let you get behind the wheel if you're not a qualified, qualified driver. driver, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of really good drivers, and there's a lot of... Uh, I mean, NASCAR in and of itself is a tremendous platform for businesses and sponsors. So there is a lot of sponsorship money out there. So there are drivers who have the funding, but don't have the ability or don't have the experience that a lot of teams still will, will not take. So there's still a lot of politics and, you know, also like kind of like all your stars have to line up for you to get that opportunity. All the stars have to line up for yeah. sure. But it's one of just, the, it's not just about the money. It's like. not just about the money. I mean, I've, I personally think it's more about talent than money. Um, I think there are a lot of drivers who do not have the funding, but have the talent that make it. And I have yet to see somebody who doesn't have the talent, but has the money make it. Yeah. On that topic, how much does a race weekend cost? Of course, now we're talking different levels. You got cup, you got Xfinity, you got, well, in the current Truck series that you're racing. So we'll talk Xfinity. How much does a race weekend cost? So it really depends, right? So there's kind of like tiers to NASCAR. There's top teams who have a much bigger budget than the mid-pack teams or the low-budget teams, as we call them. Um, so it really depends, right? So how much does the number one team in Xfinity, if you had to put number on it, how much do they spend on a weekend? Spend in a weekend? It Easily six figures. Are we talking 900,000? Lower, lower six figures, lower six figures. Once you get to the cup series, it, it does get to the mid to high six figures, but in Xfinity, it's typically low six figures. So top five team in Xfinity, you're saying maybe $200,000 per weekend. Um, it's still a little bit high, but yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. Now, Now, when we're saying this weekend, like, let's just say, you know, you go out for qualifying and you hurt your motor or something like that happens. Well, before we even get into that, let's let's step back a little bit. He just said it costs one to two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars to race in a Which weekend. Which is why I'm asking. Like, Us being from drag that? racing. Yeah, that's our, our friends who race, you know, different. Uh, again, I guess different levels. Right? Yeah, like our friends. Race grassroots level. When uh, you're talking like, yeah, I just spent five grand this weekend. Like, damn. Yeah. Well, oh, I just blew a motor. We spent 20, 15, 20 grand. Meanwhile, you're talking, these guys race 33 times a year, spending $100,000, $200,000 a weekend. A that's a lot. I mean, hey, yo, that's, you know, a couple million dollars to get a team out. Well, not only that. So racing at this level is expensive, but from what I've heard, drag racing is not all that much different. I know at the grassroots level, it's less expensive, but. Yeah, NHRA, yeah. I mean, NHRA, their, their budget's like, they're rebuilding a motor after every run in some cases. So I mean I'm I don't know I the exact I don't know the exact figures over there, but I know it gets very high as well. Hugo, Hugo Which is was why, actually like, wondering about that. That's about why, the motors. Like, you know, just just knowing that you know a motor can let go, right? I, I know you guys don't really get into too in depth with the motors, but if a motor was to let go, is that something that you guys rebuild or you know like what how, how does that how does that happen? Yeah, what, like, happens, what happens if you blow instance? a motor? So 
in most well, cases- Well, let me stop. Let me reiterate that. What happens when you blow a motor during a race week and how much does that cost you? So in most cases, uh, NASCAR teams will get what's called a motor program. So they essentially lease a motor for the weekend from either Roush, Roush Yates, um, TRD, ECR engines, Hendrick motors, like that, that type of deal. And when they do that, they have a fixed price for the weekend uh, or for the season. And that includes everything. So if something malfunctions with the motor, if it blows up, if something happens during your race weekend, they'll put a backup motor in it. It doesn't cost any more. Um, but that's typically like when the motor shops do their um, accounting and budgeting for the year and figuring out what they're going to charge teams that they account for here and there, you're going to have something blow up. Failures and stuff. Yeah. Now, when you say like you know, like this motor lease program, like when you show up, typically when you show up to the race for the weekend, is there a motor in that car or is it something that gets put in? So it typically gets dropped off at the race shop the week before the race, um, sometimes two weeks before the race. And then our team will put the motor in the car. The motors are sealed, so you can't go in them. You can't change anything really or look in them. Um, so that's typically how the lease program works. And then uh, there are there is an option to buy motors as well, but they're not as good as the lease program. So lease motors, we call having an A motor program. And then if you buy them, it's called, it's, it's a, it's a B motor program. It's not as good. It's cheaper, but they don't make as much horsepower. They don't have the same torque, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when you say like top tier teams, are the motors setups different between like a top 10, like, you know, top 10 car versus, you know, middle of the pack car? Oh yeah. I mean the top tier cars, the mid pack cars, the low tier, uh, the lower teams, there's a, t a ton of difference. There's um, the, all of the top teams, they have a ton of engineering. They have a ton of engineers. They have a lot of people working on how can we make this car as fast as possible, where a lot of the mid-tier teams and the bottom-tier teams, they're just trying to get to the car of the racetrack every week, right? So they're still doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. But um, like once you get to the bottom tier cars, like they're really just trying to get the car to the racetrack and keep it going. I mean, we have a really strenuous schedule, and when you only have three or four guys in the shop, it uh, it can get really tough. And then some of the bigger teams, they have hundreds of guys. So you're saying the top tier teams are their motors any different than the lower tier team? So it, the top tier teams always have a lease motor program. The bottom tier teams typically do not. So um, the motor program is different, yeah. So the motor would make actually more power, more torque. Oh yeah, I'm, absolutely. I mean, I've run, I've run B motors a lot. I've run A motors a lot, and there is a massive difference. Wow. When you said they send you sealed motors, they only send you one. But you did mention if you blow a motor, you'll have another one for that race. Like, who comes with the backups? Like, so typically. Um, there will be one on the hauler, so we'll we'll have an extra motor. But like on the on the team I'm on right now, there's three cars with RSS. So when we have a lease motor program, there's typically a backup motor, but there's usually only like it's not my backup motor, it's not Ryan's backup motor, it's just the it's backup team. motor. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So and if for some reason um there were to be two motor failures that weekend, um Roush Yates has other backup teams motors at the track or yeah. other teams that have motors that they can Because swap the out. motors are technically the same. Yeah, they're technically the same, and Roush Yates owns all of them. It, they're just leasing it to us for the weekend. And then, so 
but your team can change the motor. It's not like Roush Yates has to be the guy, like their guys have to change their own, like the motors, right? So it's kind of a collaborative effort. Um, okay. if, if something happens at the racetrack, Roush Yates has guys there that will come help us. They have, oh, wow, they have okay. a motor tuner as well. Um, so it's kind of a collaborative effort there. Um, and usually when something like that happens at the track, you'll see a lot of guys running around because we have a very short window to change this motor in before we have to go race. And and if a if if a motor does happen to let go during a race, you're pretty much out of the race. You're done. Right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. done. NASCAR used to let you change them in the garage, and I I remember watching as a kid. You'd see some of these guys come back out 30, 40 laps down and be able to go pick up some spots, but um, NASCAR doesn't doesn't let you do that anymore. Okay. So typically, it sounds like you don't blow motors often when it comes to races. No, I mean these Roush Yates engines. TRD, all, all of the motors that we get, they, they put a lot of time in, a lot of effort, and there's very few mechanical failures or motor failures or things like that um, at, at this level. It does happen, though. I mean, when you're trying to get everything you possibly can out of a motor, you're pushing it to the limit, right? So sometimes things do happen, but it's, it's pretty rare. And are your cars fuel-injected now, or are they still carbureted? So the Xfinity series is the last NASCAR series where we are still carbureted. The, oh, wow. the Cup series is fuel injected, and so is the Truck series. Okay. So being that it, being that it is carbureted, are are there? I guess you don't tune your own car, right? Like the the motor program tunes them, right? So or like not motor program, I mean like Roush Yates or whoever your suppliers tuning those. Yeah. So Roush right? Yates helps. And then we have a motor tuner as well. At the oh, track. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there is stuff that you could still, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can still do as a team and you can work on and you can, uh, you can build and help with these cars. And that's why so many of the bigger teams, they just have more people, not necessarily at the track, but in R and D they have in, more resources. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. How many tires do you go through in a weekend and what's the cost on that? So it depends on the race um, because we're given a tire allotment every week. So um, if the track's super abrasive, sometimes we'll be given a higher tire allotment than um, if it's not as abrasive. Like going to Darlington, I think it's our highest tire allotment. I think we have eight or nine there. Um, eight or nine sets. Eight or nine sets of tires. Yeah. So four tires to a set. We have eight or nine sets going there that weekend. So, but when you say allotment, is that like a, is it a regulated or? Yeah. So you're only allowed to buy a certain amount of tires because oh, wow. basically like at Darlington or Richmond or a lot of these tracks that really big tire fall off, you could, um, over the course of a run, you're going to lose three seconds in tire fall off. So if you have an extra set of tires compared to the car next to you, you're going to beat them every time. So they, they set an allotment to how many tires you, each team is allowed to have, and then they kind of build a strategy of when you're going to use those tires. Uh, every team has to buy these tires? Yeah, yeah. So, so every team has to buy the tires. Um, they're a little over $2,000 a set. and uh, That's a set standard. So, like, if me and you are on opposite teams, like, I can't get a better tire than you, right? No, no. All the, just one so tire. Good, Goodyear supplies all the tires. They're all the same. Um, they've done a really good job of developing really good tires for our series that race really well. So, um they're all pretty much the same for the most part. And uh, each team's only allowed to get a certain amount of them each weekend. Wow. Interesting. Sounds like Goodyear makes a whole lot of money because they're guaranteed to sell, oh, yeah. you know, eight sets of tires per car. So 38 cars, 40 cars, 45 per cars weekend, per weekend. Per, and that's one series. 
Good job, good year. Yeah, I, I, I think they're <laughs> definitely doing a really good job. But I would hate to know how much they spend on R&D developing these tires and everything else because these uh, the tires that we r- race on a race weekend, in most cases, they're specific to NASCAR. So um, I don't know what, go, what, what all goes into developing a tire that can go 200 miles an hour for would as long you as see, I I mean, have you noticed or do you know, do, do the tires actually change like every year? Like, are there a, a... So they have different codes on the tires. Sometimes they'll have harder tires or softer tires, depending on uh, the track we're going to, or depending on how the track raced last year, if they felt like they needed to make an improvement on the tire to make the racing better. Um, sometimes they'll make tires softer, um, make them harder and they'll change the codes on them and make new tires for the race that year. So it sounds like it's Goodyear's job to provide the best tire for every track since every track is kind of different. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot that goes into racing in general, but the most important thing is the four parts of the car that touch the racetrack, right? So the tires. So if, uh, if you're seeing a really good racing product out there and there's really good racing, in most cases, that's due to a really good tire. And I've been in the pits like, I see they've got there's somebody on each pit crew team. And what I've noticed is like there's one or two guys like after every tire change, like all they do is measure tire. Like I don't even really like they scrape them. They measure them. They got different tools. You're checking the wears on the tires. So you're seeing how much they wore over a run. Um, You're checking the, the air pressure in them, a bunch of different things just to get more of a data point as to what your car is doing, how it's handling. And then they can add that to the feedback that I give as a driver to make better adjustments throughout the race. So literally after every tire change, those guys are, you know, they're doing their thing and then they're reporting that back to the. Yeah. So they, they report that info to, so they give that info to the crew chief who then can communicate it with me and let me know if the tires look good if, or if there's an issue, if you um, will sometimes cord tires. So he'll let me know if, if, uh, if that happens, because if you start cording tires, you really have to, um, if you're cording a right front, you have to be a little bit easier on the right front. Cause as you cord a tire, if you keep going, you're, you're gonna blow, ultimately yeah, going to get a flat tire. Yeah. My so. wife just blew out her tire last week from cording it. So Oh my god. So I don't want to ask how that happened on a streetcar, but um Yeah, extremely cambered. Yeah. She had no idea it was bald and I got the call. She's like, uh I just blew out a tire on Tweety Sound. I was like, what? Like what possibly could have happened? And when I got there and we popped it off, I was like, Man, you drove this thing down to the metal. Yeah. And that's why that tire like, well, you don't want to set it up. And meanwhile, Joe's like, yeah, I do that every weekend. Eight sets of tires. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a lot, Living of, fun. On it's a lot of fun. Could potentially end up in the wall going 200 miles an hour. Burning rubber. Had that ever happened to you? Blow out a tire during a race? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a... <clears throat> so we've cut tires. I think I cut two tires this year alone. Did like, it mess you up? Like, Oh, yeah. So we... Uh, he's like, oh, yeah. Totally slammed uh, into 10 cars. Uh, no, no. <laughs> it, it wasn't that bad. But at Richmond, we... Uh, we cut a left front tire on lap four. Had oh, to pit, that sucks. Had to pit under green, lost three laps. And, lap four. Oh, yeah. So what happened there Who's is... the blame uh, on that? So we were, we were racing three wide, and uh, I guess somebody 
drove into the side of me and got the tire. Uh, so it, it was a racing deal. It wasn't like a tire failure. Yeah. Um, it was it's an accident. Yeah, it was an accident. <laughs> um, an unfortunate one on lap four, cause we were super fast, ended up, uh, we were, we were really fast all day, but could just never get the laps back. So it was, uh, it was a really tough day for us. So you actually mentioned your, um, you know, your achievement at Talladega with the arc of finish. What is that again? The, the cl- closest finish in arc of history. Okay. So it, would that be, you know, your greatest achievement in your NASCAR racing career thus, thus far? Um, so I think it's the biggest stat, Okay, but I don't think it's my biggest achievement. What is your biggest achievement in your NASCAR career thus far? Thus far? I mean, that's tough. It really, uh, like one, only one, only one, only one. I don't know. I don't know. What, well, what's your, um, all right, fine. Two. <laughs> so my best finish in the NASCAR Xfinity series actually came earlier this year at Daytona. We ended up running seventh. Okay. Um, so we had a really good day at Daytona earlier this year. And then, uh, in, in the Arca series back in 2018, we, we won at Berlin. So do you, what between those two, I mean, what felt better? Uh, number seven. I, in I, Xfinity? I think winning always feels better. It doesn't matter the level. So is that the greatest achievements though? I think so. I think so. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, out of all ARCA drivers, are there racers who've, there's probably a bunch who've just never won? won oh, right? yeah. I mean, there's a ton of racers at every level who have never won. Um, Shout out to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, like, do you think, being that there are so many drivers, so many racers on the, on the track at one time, um, you know, and obviously it takes time, it takes experience for you guys to, to get that, um, just to get the experience under your belt, what's like typically like the amount of time it takes for someone to like, um, to start seeing those wins, start placing like top 10 and moving up. So it all has to come together, right? You have to have a team that's capable of doing it. So you have to be able to get to a top team. And then as a driver, you have to, uh, develop your racecraft enough that you can go out there and get it done. So it's all really, it, it all really has to come together. It has to click with you as a driver and you have to have a team that's capable of going out there and winning. So um, a, a saying I've heard a lot is you can't drive a slow car fast. Um, so you have to have a really good team behind you and you have to have a really good situation. But then once you have that, you have to go get it done as a driver. I'm curious your take on it then. A driver who's racing bottom tier, why do you think they race bottom tier? Is, it, is everyone's goal to race so that they could get top tier yeah we we all go to the racetrack every week building towards the opportunity to win right so um because it's like if you're bottom tier you know you're not your chances of winning are slim to none yeah exactly so that was one thing i really had to learn when i got to the xfinity series because it was one of the first times in my career that i was going to the racetrack without a shot to win um, without a realistic shot to win. Cause you knew you were getting into a bottom tier car. Yeah. Um, so there was a couple of years of that and it, it was still, you're still racing, right? So you're racing other guys in your same level of equipment, right? So it doesn't matter if you're racing for first or you're racing for 31st, the racing's hard. There's a lot of really good talented guys out there that you're going to be racing. Um, so I feel like it helps to develop your, racecraft and you learn and uh but ultimately the goal is to be able to get into the equipment that can win so was that your goal i mean i'm asking you firsthand at this point so you you came in as a bottom tier 
you came into a bottom tier car knowing that you still did it you know you committed to it were you doing that because the end goal is i gotta be the best i can be in this bottom tier car because you know i'm racing towards one of the top tier teams hiring me so at the time that was the sponsorship that we had available um and, and that was what we can do and we were just starting our marketing agency fgr excel so we went to SS Greenlight, which was a mid-tier team, um, weren't, we, we weren't really capable of winning, but we were capable of running mid-pack. And uh, we used that platform to build our marketing agency, um, figure out what worked and didn't work for sponsors. We proved the concept. And then we've continuously built on that the last couple of years to be able to continue to raise more sponsorship. And... Uh, I was also able to work on my skills and get better as a driver. And uh, it's all kind of started to come together on that side of it. So that goes together with the you know idea of sponsorship because, okay, you're a bottom tier driver. You have you know experience and talent to get into a top tier car, but it costs money to get into the, those seats, right? Into those cars. You need sponsors to make that happen. So how... How important is sponsorship to, you know, your program and to your success, essentially? And how do you go about getting sponsors? So that's a really good question. So basically, sponsorship is incredibly important to what we do as race car drivers. It's what allows us to go to the racetrack um, in a lot of cases. And ultimately, um, what I try to do here at FGR when it comes to our sponsors is this is a business at the end of the day, right? NASCAR is big business. So when a company sponsors you and they give you money, um, let's say they give you a dollar, right? They want to know not only how do they get that dollar back in the form of an ROI, but how do they get a dollar and then some? So they know it was a good investment. They see their sales go up. They see um, an improvement in their business. Like how did our platform help them as a business? And that's what we built FGR around was being able to show a super attractive ROI to the sponsors we work with. And over the course of the last three or four years, we've been able to put together a program that shows an incredibly attractive ROI. And every year our sponsors continue to come back. This was something that I learned along the way, you know, um, for example, Jeff Gordon, you, mm -hmm. I always knew him as driving the DuPont car. You know, but that just meant DuPont sponsored Jeff for 38 races, right? Yeah. From what I'm seeing and learning now, and has it always been this way? Like a, a, a sponsor can sponsor one race. So a sponsor can sponsor one race. They can sponsor the whole season as... As NASCAR is today, there's very few full season sponsors. So I think the closest uh, sponsor there is to a full season sponsor is FedEx. I think they have about 30 races with Denny Hamlin. Don't that's, a, that's the Jordan car, right? So Denny Hamlin owns a team with Michael Jordan, ah. but the car that FedEx is on is uh, Joe Gibbs racing car. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different sponsors that, They'll pick up four races, five races, one race, 10 races. And it really depends on, one, what their marketing budget is uh, that they're able to spend in the sport. And then two, what their goals are out of the partnership, right? There's some that are location-based, like 
they really uh, they really want to focus on the Florida area. So they sponsor the two races at Daytona and they sponsor Homestead, right? So they do a three race package that way. Or you're a company based in the Northeast. Maybe you'll do New Hampshire, Dover, Pocono, things like that. Or you're a company that's trying to expand into somewhere. They're trying to expand into a new region. Um, so some of them are location-based. Others are they'll sponsor some of the bigger races. So like Daytona is our biggest race of the year. It gets the, the largest TV viewership, things like that. So there's a lot of uh, companies that want to just do Daytona in a lot of cases. Um, and then each race we do, it all they all kind of have their own value um, in – in their own way. Right. So, uh, you can do different activation, different things, depending on which track you go to, you can do at track activation. You could do spots at the midway, which is like where all the NASCAR fans go to buy merchandise and see new displays, things like that. So you can buy a spot there. So there's a lot of different stuff you can do as a sponsor, um, to activate within NASCAR. And that really, um, dictates how many races they'll sponsor. The original question was, how did you get sponsors? I see uh, you got your Bucked Up Energy buckshot right there. So they Bucked Up has been a sponsor for your program for two years now? So Bucked Up's on their third year, fourth year with us, actually. Talk about it. How, um, how'd they get on board? How's it going? Where is it going? So it's going great. Bucked Up has been uh, growing a ton. I actually had to bring my... Buckshot here today. It's uh, it, it's getting a little late here, so I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna open it up here in a second. What is that? Um, so it looks like a bullet from here. So it Shot, actually shotgun it, shell. Yeah. So, so it does look like a shotgun shell. That's that's why it's called buckshot. But basically, it's a uh, it's a high powered energy shot. So I'm gonna um drink it here in a few minutes, and uh, I'll be able to get through this podcast no problem. And you probably won't sleep tonight, and you're ready for another podcast at 6 a.m.? Absolutely, absolutely. Five hours just isn't enough. So do you take one of those before every race? So I drink a bucked up before every race, and uh, I have these, honestly, a pretty fair amount. Anytime I, I really need to get something done. So would bucked up, were they involved in NASCAR before sponsoring with you? Talk us through it. Like, how did you start working with them how did they how does the sponsorship work did they sponsor all your races no so bucked up sponsors a handful of races a year and uh, we were the ones that first brought them into nascar we brought them in in 2020 during covid actually so it was really cool to do that there and then they've just grown so much as a company from 2020 to now it's really impressive what they've been able to do and i've been really happy to be able to grow with them so it's uh really cool to have them in nascar Let's, uh, I want to get into, like, outside of driving, like, what's your race preparation, um, you know, any, any type of training that you guys do specifically to get your to get your body, like, used to dr driving? Yeah, because when you're driving, I mean, it's like 120 degrees inside that car. Try 145. For average, like, average NASCAR races, how long? Like, in the Cup Series. So, in the Cup Series, they're probably about four hours. So, four hours... 150 degrees in a car. 150 in the car, but you got like a cooling suit. How's that work? So no matter how you cut it, it is hot. What's the body tip? What's, like, yeah, what's so your do, body they monitor, do they monitor? Do you have like vital monitoring? So there are some uh, drivers who do. I, I personally do not, but. You can wear your Apple um, Watch, right? So I, I don't even like sitting in saunas. Like that sounds crazy for me. So it is, it is unbelievable. So. 
I can tell you this. I don't know my body temp, but I do know that I will lose between six and 12 pounds in water weight over the course of a race. Wow. So in four hours, you're losing, let's just say, 10 pounds. Sweat it all out. Yeah. So, is hyd- so hydration, are, is there some type of hydration that you got that you have during the race or you only get that at pit stops? Or? So they'll, they'll give you a water bottle on pit stops occasionally, but you can only drink it really under caution. You can't do it while you're green. There's just, so you, ain't, you can't wear like a camelback and, you know, so some drivers do. I, I don't. Oh, but it's, but it's allowed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I, uh, I'm, I'm usually so focused on racing and what I'm doing when we're under green flag that I don't even think about getting a drink. You might need like a camel pack with some buckshot in it. So <laughs> Bucked Up actually has a product specifically for hydration that I take all the time. I have it in the okay. car with me when I'm racing, and um, it, it really does a really good job. Do you uh, got awesome. one of those cooling suits? So I do actually, and they work pretty well when they work. Um, I've had them go bad a couple of times and, uh, even hotter. <laughs> oh, it's, it's terrible because when they go bad, it's another layer. It's another layer it's, on you. Not only is it another layer, it's, it's weight, putting right? hot water across oh, your body. What? Um, so, and the only times I've had it go bad, I don't, I don't know if it's coincidence or like I don't know the if hottest heat, race probably, the hottest right? races of the year, they go bad. Uh, so like, sounds like torture. Uh, so it, it 200 miles an hour. You look <laughs> just sweat, just hot. Yo. Oh, it, it, it cooks you. It cooks Man. you. You got, you got like a sweatband or, you know, headband. Yeah, how, how you keep no. the sweat out of your eyes. So, um, that's a valid question. Honestly, I've never gotten sweat in my eyes. I've never really thought about it, but honestly, the more I think about it, I think it's so hot that it, your sweat evaporates. <laughs> Like you're not like you're not it, dripping it, sweat; it just evaporates. It's just well, then, yeah, because because you, your helmet goes up to right above over your eyebrows, right? So technically, your helmet's just absorbing. Yeah, and and I mean, in a lot of cases, when I think about it, like when I played basketball or lacrosse or things like that, I would sweat a lot. But when you play basketball indoors, at most, it's seventy-five degrees. Yeah, it's air conditioned, so you can see the sweat pouring down because. You're doing a lot of work. You're you're exerting energy to make yourself sweat, but it's not evaporating quickly. Where when it's a it's double that in the race car, I think it's just Full uh, humidity, all that. Only you know this. We've never been in a 200 mile an hour car ripping around the for track four hours. for four hours, let alone 20 minutes or five minutes. What's but you've watched a lot of races. What's What's tougher on the body, being a spectator sitting in the sun for four hours just cooking or doing that? So I think it certainly depends on the race. But no, no, it's it's definitely harder in the car. But the one thing I will say. But you get the wind at least, though, no? No, no. So he's in a suit. Well, not only that, there's very little airflow in the cars. Thought, don't you guys have like those ducks that... Yeah, they they don't do very much. No, no. I thought Um, that was the whole point of that, so that it throws air into you. So it is it is the point, but they still don't do very much. So from an engineering standpoint, the least amount of uh, airflow you can get in the car creates the the better the aerodynamics are, the better the downforce is. So the engineers do everything they can to not have air air in the car. But from a humane purpose, they need to give you air because yeah, no, like we we have air. like it's it's not like we're like gasping for air in there. But like when you think about going two hundred miles an hour, like 
a lot of people think like, oh, like there's a ton of wind in there. There's really not. Like it's it's pretty stationary air um, for going that fast. So so back to that. I mean, obviously, you know, me and Brian off the street, we're not gonna like our bodies probably can't handle that no matter how good of a you know conditioning we think we have. What uh, are there physical conditioning programs that the drivers are you know required to do, or is it that mostly set on your own? Oh, so I don't want to say it's required because uh, it, it really is. Um, a lot of individual drivers will do it on their own, but you really need to do it as a driver. I, I know very few drivers who don't train and can get into these types of situations and uh, deal with that type of heat. Like I do a lot of heat room training. I do a lot of cycling, a lot of running, a lot of uh, cognitive drills, a lot of weightlifting and things like that as well. So, in the heat. Oh yeah. So um, like when we'd go, cycle and things like that. Um, during the summer in North Carolina, you'll pick the hottest time of the day. So you'll go out at two thirty, three o'clock and bang out. So you're planning for that. Yeah. You want to accustom your body to it. Oh, so the more time you can spend in the heat, the better. Um, because you just have to get you're used to it in the car. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now on the other side, um, you know, last few years, especially now with the IR, um, simulators and stuff like that. How important is that on the training side as well? Oh, simulation is uh, incredibly important. So I have I have an iRacing simulator at my house. I spend a lot of time on that. I do races every week. I get on there with some of the other drivers and work on things. And then the manufacturers also have their own simulator. So the biggest difference between uh, the simulator I have at my house versus the manufacturer's sim. Uh, there's a lot of differences, but the biggest one is that the manufacturer sims actually simulate my car on the racetrack, oh, right? Wow. So every single component on my NASCAR car is measured to thousands of inches and it's put into the simulator. So we can make changes in the simulator that emulate real life and we can build a setup off of that. We can build changes off of it where the iRacing simulator at my house, it, it helps with my racecraft, but it doesn't help us build a setup to go to the racetrack and be better. Interesting. And that's also a difference between a bottom tier team versus a top tier team. The quality of the simulator available to the drivers is completely different. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, when I was with mid to bottom tier teams, we would never get simulator time. Um, I didn't I didn't even see the inside of a manufacturer simulator till my third year in Xfinity. Because of access or Yeah, just just access. I mean these simulators cost a tremendous amount of money to build and make. I mean, it is unbelievable. It's, probably, it's like a custom. It's like custom. Yeah, I mean, the, is the, this a, is a simulator at the manufacturer? Is that your team's garage? No. So the manufacturers own the sims. So Toyota owns them. So Ford you go to Toyota. So Toyota or Ford. I've, I've I've never been in the Chevy one, but basically, the Toyota simulator and the Ford simulator. They give the top teams a lot of access and the um, mid to bottom tier teams get minimal access or in a lot of cases, no access just because there isn't enough time in the day, right? So the manufacturers give the top teams the most access because they're their best opportunity to go to the racetrack and win. So, And I'm assuming the teams have to pay to get in these, sit on these simulators, yeah? I I don't think so. No, oh, I built into their budget. I don't think so. I, I I don't. I honestly don't know how all of that works. But I don't. I don't think. But you've sat um, in them. 
manufacturer yeah. simulators. Yeah, so I've I've been in the Ford simulator. I've been in the Toyota simulator. And when you're in the simulator, are you like fully suited up or? So yeah, and it, in some cases you're fully suited up. Um, I mean, it's incredibly immersive. The simulator moves. It's got a screen completely around you. It's uh, the inside of the simulator looks exactly like the way your car is going to look in real life. Wow. So like every switch is in the same place. It's it's identical. Okay. So speaking of simulators, I actually had the opportunity to go to one of these top tier facilities. I won't mention it just because I don't even know if I was able to even walk near this room, but the simulators are top secret at some of these race teams, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, all of these race teams, manufacturers, whoever it is, they spend a lot of money on R&D and they spend a lot of money on engineering and they don't want their secrets walking out the door, right? Um, like I remember I was walking in that direction and I got grabbed by the shoulder like, you can't go there. I was like, what? Why? They're like, no, nah, that room is like literally top secret. Like only the driver and team owners allowed in that room. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of stuff that the general public and other race teams um, are, are not allowed to see or know about what a lot of these teams are doing just because it's proprietary information, right? It's uh, stuff that they spent money on R&D to figure out, and uh, they had a lot of smart people spend a lot of time to figure out how to get an advantage, and they don't want everybody else to know it. Now, I, I know in like different types of racing, there's always like, Someone's always cheating or someone's always trying to do something to, you know, get that advantage. Is there, have there been teams in NASCAR caught cheating or? Oh, all the time. Type, what, all the time. And all what the types time. of cheating? How often does that? it happen? All the time. Um, well, how, yeah, like what is the type of cheating that happens? I mean, I feel like there's a story every couple of weeks about a team having an issue in tech or getting caught. Um, and ultimately, sometimes they're blatantly cheating. Other times they're just trying to get as much as they can. And because at the end of the day, we're all trying to compete for hundreds of seconds, right? Um, very, very small amounts of time. So if you're able to get um, a little bit of an advantage by getting into the gray area, if you will, or if you're able to get some of this stuff through tech, um, it's an advantage. And if you do get caught, what are the types of penalties here? Like, has a team ever been told, like, you can't even race this race? Like, is that how... So in tech before the race, if they catch something in tech before the race, they will make you fix it. So you have to solve the problem or fix what you did before you go out there. I don't ever remember a time where a team wasn't allowed to race. Um, maybe they had to pull out a backup car, but I don't even remember that happening. Usually they can fix it. Um, but I do remember times where in post-race inspection, Teams are caught cheating, and then there's usually massive fines by NASCAR, different things like that, depending on what it was. Um, and and when and that's where I think I was trying to get at is what types of cheating are there? Is it like something with suspension, like downforce stuff? I know there's like minimum heights. It, the car can't be super low, shit like that. So everything you can think of. <laughs> um, anywhere that you could potentially get an advantage, teams have tried to manipulate. Right. Right. Um, I, I mean, on the cup car, there was a story earlier this year of uh, Hendrick Motorsports. Um, basically, when you buy on the new cup car, when you buy parts from NASCAR, you're not allowed to change the parts at all. You're not allowed to make your own. It has to be exactly the way they sold it to you. And they modified their... Um, hood louvers to, I don't know if it was an advantage or not. I'm, I don't know why you would modify them. If it wasn't an advantage. So I'm sure it was, 
but um, they got in a bunch of trouble. They got a giant fine. They got driver points docked, and then it ended up going to uh, like you can you can fight it right, like arbitration. Yeah, yeah. Like so they 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 fought it, um, and they challenge it. Yeah, so they challenged it. Ended up going to a uh, like a a, a kind of like a court panel, like, like a an arbitrator. Yeah, probably. absolutely. And uh, they got the driver points back, but they still had to pay the fine. So, I mean, there's just a lot of different things that NASCAR can impose penalties on. It could be a monetary fine. It could be a points penalty. In some cases, they could take your win away. Um, if you won the race and ended up cheating. So there, there's a lot of different things they can wow. do. Okay. I actually meant to ask this earlier when we were talking about how the high temps sitting in the race car, you know, up to 150 degrees. Is it like sitting in a hot sauna, 150 degrees for four hours? Is that comparable? So it's a little bit different than a sauna. So a sauna. That's like the dry heat. Yeah. So a sauna is super humid. There's a lot of moisture in there where in the car it's it's a dry heat so i think uh the difference between a sauna and the race car is you're drenched in sweat in a sauna um because there's so much humidity and moisture in there right where i feel like in the race car it's a much drier heat so it dries you out you get dehydrated quicker in a drier heat than you do in the humidity in my opinion that's why i feel like a lot of the training we do as well is in heat rooms not necessarily saunas so you can still turn the heat up to 150 degrees but it's not uh it's on a steam room you ever work out in the heat room no i heard people that like that hot yoga i never tried is that is that is that a heat room where they do hot yoga so so hot hot yoga basically is a heat room yeah i I, I don't think they turn it up as high as they do for us um all right so it's let's say i'm in a hot yoga room and I turned hours. it up to 140 degrees. Me sitting in that room for four hours, is that what you're dealing with? I'm trying to just get so, a comparison here. So, all right. I can't imagine. If, if, if you're looking, it sounds like torture. <laughs> if, if you're looking for a comparison, turn the heat up in the hot yoga room to 140 degrees. Yeah. Put a stationary bike in there. And, and, and then ride. play, ride on the bike. But while you're riding on the bike, play like chess or something like that because you still have to think. M- mentally be focused and be able to think well, even better put put an eye racing simulator in a hot yoga room at 140 and that's pretty much what you're dealing yeah, with and s- sitting there for four or five hours yeah yeah that don't sound that's pretty intense yeah that sounds <laughs> crazy because from us we just like oh you guys are just turning left yeah, man, I got, I got a CRX without AC, and I'm like, I don't want to take that thing out when it's 85 degrees, 90 degrees out. That's, that's hot. <laughs> I mean, that's like, and a lot of people ask me the difference between like Formula One type racing and NASCAR from the physicality standpoint. And that's honestly probably the biggest difference is they don't have to deal with the type of heat that we deal with um, because they, don't, they have an open cockpit. So the G forces they deal with are a lot higher than ours. But the heat is nowhere near. And Let's they're talk not racing for as long either. Yeah, typically not. The races no. aren't that long. No, and they pass way less cars. F1, NASCAR, Joe, talk about it. Uh, so I love both of them. I, I, I really love F1, but I really feel like NASCAR drivers um, are like we have to be the most versatile drivers uh, in pretty much any series, in my opinion. We go from super speedways like Daytona Talladega to the dirt at Bristol to road courses to short tracks to intermediate tracks. Like 
we have to do so many different things and master so many different disciplines of racing where formula one, like they go to different tracks, but they're all pretty similar styles of racing. Now also just so people know NASCAR, you guys still transmission wise, it's not automatic trans. It's, it's a manual, yeah. Mat- gated manual trans, right? Yeah. So the cup cars now have a se- sequential shifter. Ours oh, wow. is still a, Gated manual, yeah, okay. in Xfinity. So with a clutch, everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. Interesting. I didn't know that they went to sequentials, so. So, funny enough, when they first switched to it, there was, uh, there was a few guys um, that ended up blowing up motors just because they're used to. Yeah, they would downshift when they meant to upshift just because it's like what they were used to their entire career. Um, so, like, the. The first year they did it, some some of the guys had issues coming off pit road and things like that, just because it's what they're used to. They're not used to right. Um, like when you're going from second to third, coming back, they're used to going from second to third on on the shifter. Now something like that also in the transmissions, can you guys change gear ratio, shit like that? Oh yeah, more like- yeah. So you you can change all of that, and like there's a lot of post race reports that we go through and post race debriefs where we talk about how how the motor pulled from second to third gear on restarts, third to fourth gear, different things like that. So that when we go back to a racetrack either later in the year or the next year, you can just keep getting better and better data. Exactly. exactly. How to set the car up. And uh, how many gears in the transmissions? Uh, Four. Four speeds. Okay. And what about the sequential? Same thing. Uh, So the sequentials are five. Okay. Interesting. And what's the, what's the motors like red line? Um, so we redline right about 9,000 RPMs. That's a V8, 9,000. Oh yeah. So oh yeah. Screaming. I mean, my, my shift point in, in, in most cases is between, uh, 8,400 and 8,800. So when you guys are full throttle on like, you know, going at it, the motor is at what? Like just under 9,000. Uh, yeah. Like right around 8,000 RPM. Oh wow. Once we're racing. Yeah. We're talking, you might not know the answer to this. Maybe you do. Number one team, let's say in NASCAR Xfinity. Let's say top The number one guy. Yeah, number one guy. Number one. So um, it's a tough question because some teams are better at some tracks. Some teams are better at others. But like the top teams in Xfinity, right? You have Junior Motorsports. You have Joe Gibbs Racing. You have Stuart Haas. You have RCR. You have Colleague. Um, and your team is so i am with joe gibbs racing part-time this year and i'm with rss racing for the rest of the races so if we're talking you know not specifically your team but a top tier team in general everyone on that team is getting paid Mm -hmm. right from the driver to the Pit crew, everyone's getting paid, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a job. So you don't have to be specific on this, but is this the same for every team? Who is the highest paid on the team? Is it the driver? So it really depends on the situation because kind of back to what we were talking about before, driver salaries vary so much depending on the contract you have as a driver, not just the team you're with, but the contract that you're able to negotiate as a driver and the value that you're able to bring to the team as a driver through sponsorship, through performance, different things like that. So in most cases, I do want to say it's the driver, but it, uh, it definitely varies. 
and this is just for aspiring people who, you know, potentially want to have or to be in NASCAR as a career, whether it be, you know, from the back end business side or to be on track as, you know, crew chief or pit crew. Um, besides the driver, like who would be the next highest paid? Uh, probably the crew chief. So, but there, like, there's a lot of guys behind the scenes that really bring the whole weekend together. Like there's, there's spotters, there's pit crew guys, there's engineers, there's, um, car chiefs, crew chiefs. Uh, then on the business side, you have the marketing guys, you have PR, you have team presidents. Like there's so much that really goes into bringing the race car to the racetrack every week. Would you say it's 50, 50 on a team? Like half the team is on the track and half the team is in the office knowing how important sponsorship is? So it certainly depends on the size of the race team. Um, so some of the bigger teams, they have a lot of guys that don't go to the racetrack. They have a lot of guys in the shop that work on the cars that just stay in the shop. In the shop. They don't go to the racetrack. But a lot of the mid-tier teams, the smaller teams, the same guys that are in the shop are the same guys at the racetrack with you. Um, so it, it really varies uh, pretty drastically. Joe, we spoke a lot about cars and racing. I do know, you know, obviously you love racing. I do know you have a crazy sneaker collection and might love sneakers more than you love cars. I don't know. You tell me. So I definitely do not love sneakers more than cars, but it is a close second. Um, so I've built a pretty crazy sneaker collection over the years. Um, I've, I've been into sneakers since I was in middle school. So um, kind of being able to find some of my grails is, is a lot of fun. I know you buy, you sell, you trade. At the most, how many pairs of sneakers did you have in your, you know, own at the most? So at the peak of my sneaker collection, yeah, I, 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 I had over 200 pairs. Over 200 pairs. Um, All heat or just you know, a little bit of everything? A little bit of everything. And then I, I sold about 120 of them and really consolidated it to some crazy grails. So for a while... Um, Let's get into that. So at 200 pairs... Can you put a number to what that value of 200 pairs in your collection was? So I honestly can't put a value to it, but I, I will say this. So when I first started being able to get into sneakers pretty heavily um, back in 2019, I realized that I'm going to go broke really quickly with this. Uh, it, it, it's a hobby, but also an addiction. Um, so I figured out how to kind of turn it into a business. So I buy, I sell, I trade, um, and I treat some of them like investments, like investing in the stock market and uh, different things like that. So I've actually been able to make money in sneakers over the years. Um, even uh, some of the years when racing wasn't really paying the bills, I was able to uh, pay the bills with sneakers. So, um, I mean, there, there was years where my sneaker collection, uh, it, it profited me forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year. You made more money selling sneakers than racing. There, there, there was a year or two where that was the case, legitimately, yeah. That's what's up. What I mean, would you say right now is your, like, what's your grail right now? So your number one pair. My number one pair that I own or my number one pair that I'm trying to get? That, that you, you own. own. so far. That I own? Probably my Back to the Future Air Mags. And Have for those who don't know, those are the sneakers that Marty McFly wore in Back to the Future. Auto Lace. Nike actually brought them to life. Oh, yeah. Oh, and those it's, it's sneakers so awesome. are 
forty thousand dollars. Yeah, they're they're not cheap. It was uh, that was probably the craziest uh, grail I found. I, so well, we don't need to know how much you paid, but if we went on StockX right now, how much would a size eleven be going for? Like forty grand, yeah, forty fifty grand. And you you wore yeah. yours. So I actually wore them to NASCAR production day a couple of weeks ago. It was pretty cool. You creased them. I, I did crease them. Yeah, you're um, a G. Gotta wear your so kicks. You gotta, wear them. gotta wear your kicks. This is the same guy who's wearing Christian Dior Jordan ones right now that are, you know, about seven thousand dollars. And he's he was showing Spread us right earlier. Right he's there. like, look how creased up these things are. <laughs> I well, just spilled ketchup on them. All right, I did not spill ketchup. <laughs> I did not spill ketchup. On them. But I'm a huge proponent of wearing your sneakers. So I have some of them who like that are are investments, but other ones like I really enjoy sneakers. I enjoy the culture. I enjoy like the hunt for finding some of these grails. So um, I, I have to wear them. And that's the cool thing about the sneaker hobby. You know, um, even though you wear these sneakers, you could technically at times resell them to get your money back or if not uh, make more money on them. Yeah. yeah. I cannot tell you how many times I've bought brand new sneakers, worn them and sold them for more than I bought them for. Yeah, that's, that's the awesome part about this. I mean, you're the same guy. I met up with them one time for lunch and he popped the trunk open and he's like, dude, I just got three pairs of Louis Vuitton Air Force Ones. I'm like, bro, like, I it was hard finding pictures of these things, let alone. Oh, dude. It, you it have was, them in your size, in your trunk. They are the hardest shoes to find, I swear. Because, so, they're super rare as is, but basically Louis Vuitton gave them to their VIP clients, right? So, they're, Highest VIP clientele had the option to buy these sneakers. Are you are you part of that VIP clientele? I am clientele? not. Oh. I am most certainly not. Okay. So this gets interesting. But basically, because of that, a lot of um, the highest Louis Vuitton VIP clients were women. So their feet happen to be smaller. So trying to find a size twelve in these is nearly impossible in some of these colors. So it's been a fun, uh, it's been a fun hunt for me. I found about three or four of the seven that um, I'm, I'm trying to find, but it's it's been a lot of fun. What has been the hardest pair for you to get? Like, because obviously there's StockX, there's consignment shops, but there's some pairs out there like you just can't find them. Like, what pair did you get that was just you know? Tell us of how how hard it was to get. So there's been a few that I've been looking for for years. And uh, the Air Mags were one of them. I remember, so I had about 220 pairs of sneakers and I sold over a hundred of them. Um, so it was a sale slash trade. So I was looking for the What the Dunks at the time. They're from 2002, I believe. It's like a combination of 30 different Dunks. They only made 300 pair. It was a promotional pair for a movie at the time. So uh, I'd never found a size 11 and a half um, request boutique in Charlotte, where I find a lot of my sneakers. They, uh, they actually ended up getting an 11 and a half. So instantly I'm like, I, I have to get these. So um, I brought them 120 pairs of sneakers. I got the, what the dunks. And then I got the rest in cash to go buy a pair of air mags. Um, I'm just doing some rough math here. hundred pairs roughly. I mean, Retail on a pair of sneakers these days is like 150 bucks. So let's just say you were, you didn't have general release sneakers. So let's just say 200 pair, 200 dollars a pair. You roughly traded in 100 pairs, got 20 thousand bucks, if not a whole lot more. So and you got one that, pair yeah. of shoes 
and some cash. So I got the what the dunks, and then I Which got are what ten thousand dollars sneakers. Yeah, so but they're between like ten and twenty thousand. Yeah, um, and then light, light, light difference. Ten thousand, <laughs> twenty thousand. I don't know. I'm gonna crease them anyway. So I, I actually did wear up the sneaker con, um, but light flex. I was, uh, I was trying to find a pair of Air Mags at the time, but like. I can't um, drop over ten thousand dollars on a pair. Like I don't, I don't just have that in my bank account, right? So I have. But had you to, do have a hundred pairs that are worth that exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. So I have to sell them now so that when the opportunity comes so you along, did to buy have a pair, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars in the bank account after that. <laughs> so af- after that, I did so that when I, I finally came across a pair of Air Mags, I was able to buy them. Um, shout out, sold out in Jersey City for finding those for me. That was awesome. Um, I like sneakers. Hugo likes sneakers. You know, like the, it's not too crazy for us, but I know a general person who, you know, wears like $40, $50 pairs of sneakers right now is like, what the fuck? Well, so it's a different game, you know, yeah. it's a different culture. Oh, it, and you it's fun. It's, it, it's a huge hobby of mine. And uh, you meet good people along the way. You exactly. Know some people some collect experience. cards, some people collect video games, comic books. We like sneakers. Yeah. Absolutely. And anytime you could turn your passion into a business as well. Yeah. Um, it doesn't hurt to I, mean, I, 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 I don't have to tell you that, Brian. You know. So that's that's why I could I could definitely relate here, but you know, I've never worn a pair well worth over five thousand bucks. But I'll tell you every time I've seen Joe, uh yeah, he's always wearing sneakers well worth over a thousand bucks. NASCAR, if you guys haven't already uh, given this man his accolade for the uh, freshest collection, he rightfully deserves it. Yeah, I I have yet to see another NASCAR driver that has a collection anywhere near what That's mine is. Up, man. That's cool. We got to get you on that Jordan team. Yeah, what's up, Jordan? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'd be I'd be super stoked if Michael would just come sign my 1985 breads. Hey, man. That's right. You do have that pair, right? The original Jordan ones. Not the lost and found. No, no. Like I I have the the original ones from 1985. So that that was something I was doing that was fun. Um, I was so the Jordan one bread is one of my favorite sneakers of all time. So I'm like, I want to get one from every year they came out. So they were 1985, 1994, 2001, 2011, 2013, 2016, and then the patent breads that just came out. Um, and I was able to get my 1985 ones are in really good condition. And uh, Woodbox? No. So trying to find the, I, the craziest thing, the cardboard is more rare than the sneakers. So... People who have them brand new in the box, like it's a thirty thousand dollars sneaker all day. Um, so I'm, mine, I I got for a steal. I felt like they're in really good condition. Don't have the box, slightly used, but for the history, I'm like, how how can I not get these? Like I, I got them for under two grand. No way. Oh, it, it, so that was probably one of the best sneaker finds I've ever had. That's one of the best deals you got. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's it's almost I, like now that we when we put this out. You're gonna to have to keep that pair on you at the track at all times, just in case. MJ just in shows case. Up, so you know he does go to the races. Oh, right? he, he goes to the races all the time. So right. I, I I won't lie. They've they've been they've been traveling the racetrack with me word, last. You already been last doing little that. bit. I've I've been trying. I've, the opportunity you, you know, can't happens, you can't just you can't make sleep. that happen. You can't just walk up to the trailer. I mean, ah. you're a driver. You got full access. No, no, I know, I know, I know. But it's uh, 
You gotta, we'll put, the, you gotta, we'll you gotta put the driver pride to the side <laughs> and fanboy out a little bit. I mean, it's Michael uh, Jordan, bro. It's, no, it's true. It is, it is Michael Jordan. I just saw actually today on uh, Golden Auctions, they're auctioning off Carl Malone's Dream Team collection. He has every single jersey and pair of shoes from the 1994 Dream Team, and they're auctioning on all. Carl Malone owns the whole collection, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his Jordan's jersey right now is over a million bucks. That's crazy. Meanwhile, every That's other player crazy. is like, you know, anywhere from like 10,000 to 100,000. <laughs> Jordan's jersey, million bucks. I, you got to put the driver pride to the side. You got to walk up to the man like, yo, I drive. I just want to say what's up to Jordan real quick. And you got to whip out the sneaker. Everybody's like, all right, let him in. No, no. I don't. What I other mean, guy walks in here with it? I just, I just want pair. him signed for me. Like, yeah, it's like a really cool, cool deal. Like I, like I don't even get a picture. Come on. You got to yeah, get the picture yeah, too. No, of course. Of course. And then uh, if he happens to sign you to the team, why not? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be mad about it. <laughs> Yo, that might be the, that might be the icebreaker. You know, you got it. You gotta come in your suit, but wear a Jordan jersey on top, holding the sneaker. Like, yo, security, I gotta come through. Check this out. Bro. She's total fanboy. Yeah, I, I got a fanboy. Yeah, gotta do it. Yeah, gotta do it. Security gotta let you through with that. <laughs> Try it at the next race. You know he's at. Uh, I'm gonna have to. You should do it, man. That's totally worth it. You might you might even make the headlines there, like. Joe Graff Jr., Xfinity driver, approaches yeah, def- yeah, you definitely the GOAT. Have, you know, oh, my gosh. Got to have your photographer. I mean, I, I I love wearing crazy kicks to the racetrack. Like, I don't know if you guys saw at Talladega. I wore uh, I wore the big red boot out there to drive her intros and everything. Yeah, I've seen that. I mean, cool. man, I, I'm not even brave enough to put them things on knowing some people can't even take them off. So I was a little bit worried about that. I'm like, you know, if I put these on, I can't take them off for the race. Uh, this is going to be a big problem. Um, but all, all eyes must have been on you when people have been seeing you. How, how, what was that attention like? Was it like, yo, I look crazy in these, in these boots? Oh, yeah. You, you look absolutely ridiculous, right? Like, there's, there's no way around that. They're, they're cool and everything, but you look ridiculous. Were you, were you sweating knowing you look ridiculous or are you sweating knowing, like, yeah, no, I did that? I think it's one of those deals. Um, you, uh, you wear them kind of knowing you look ridiculous, but it's cool at the same time. It gets attention. Speaking of the boots, I took them off for Talladega and I haven't seen them since. And I really, so I, I guess my, <laughs> I guess my brother took, took them from Talladega and I was, what you got? I'd honestly be mad about it, but he brought me Wendy's. So I, I, I can't even be mad. Right on time. I can't too. even be mad. Oh, I was starving. I was starving. I mean, Oh, get down with these nuggets. I, I can't believe you, you wore those things. Oh, I, I well, can't believe I wore them either. But well, it looks like you don't own them anymore because uh, <laughs> honestly, I'd be really disappointed about it. They, like he, they, he took my shoes, but he brought me a biggie bag. So I guess we're even now. So on that note, I think it's right about time we wrap up the podcast because looks like it's dinner. I think it's dinner time. So, Joe, we appreciate you coming out. For anyone that wants to follow you on social media, could you plug your uh, socials? Yeah, so Joe Graff Jr. on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as well. Um, and uh, super happy to be out here, guys. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Always a pleasure meeting up with you. Hopefully get to catch you at one of your races this year. And if you guys like this episode, Eat, Sleep, Race podcast, make sure you like, comment, subscribe on whatever platform you're watching on. And also share. And also, most importantly, share, drop a comment. And if you want to follow us on our socials, at Hugo ESR, at Brian ESR, catch you on the next one.